All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. Welcome to the first, the inaugural, the beginning podcast uh, that we here call Mars Magazine. I'm Adario Strange with... I'm Victoria Song, but you can call me Vic. Vic Song, or Vic Mackey, as I like to say. No, Vic Song. Vic Song. Yeah. We won't We won't take you down the, the shield route. Um, he doesn't have a happy ending, so I'd prefer not to... Yes, you're not a bald, corrupt cop in the streets of Los Angeles. Anyway, uh, what we talk about here is the intersection between science fiction and real technology and science. Uh, I'm a technology writer. I've been a technology writer for a a good many years. Uh, Victoria writes about various and sundry. Why why don't you kind of break down? What what do you write about? What, what, What has been your career arc? Um, so when we used to work together, it was biz and tech. And then I kind of shifted over into a more general beat, politics, human interest stories. And then now I'm kind of back on the tech side of things. So I guess you could say I've always been tech adjacent. And we both actually have an an interesting focus on Japan as we both lived in Japan um, I lived in and Japan for five years. What, what, what was that? And that's where we met. Yes, that's where we met. We met at uh, a company, which shall remain nameless, but we met at a company. <laughs> and I was in Japan for five years. How long were you in Japan for? Seven. Seven years. Um, and we both have very different and interesting experiences in Japan. And we are now both back in New York and... I, I, I'm still dealing with a, a bit of Western culture shock. I think you're doing better than I am. I don't know. No, no. I just look like I'm doing better. I, I have like crazy. So I just started um, a new gig and I have to constantly stop myself from being that girl who's like, well, you know, when I was living in Tokyo, this is how they do it over there. And it's like, no, no one wants to hear that. No one cares. Actually, I'm that guy. And, and people are very tired of it, and I try to stop myself, but pretty much I'm that guy. So, Do you ever get to the point um, and where you hear other people going like, oh, yeah, man, like Kenka, that's like totally authentic. That's like where I go for my Japanese food. It's like a Japanese pub, and I sit there, and I'm like, you, why didn't you just ask me? You know I lived in Tokyo for seven freaking years. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've... I've almost lost friends because of uh, my inability to hold back from criticizing their Japanese cuisine choices here in New York. Because there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of fake stuff going on here. Anyway, so that's a little bit about us. Um, you know, you'll get to know a little bit more. But we're just going to dive right in. First, uh, we're we're going to talk news, little culture, politics issues involving, you know, just the business of entertainment as it is relevant to culture. And then later on, we're going to talk about uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. And we'll unpack that later as to like why that's an interesting science fiction meets reality intersectional topic. But first off, let's talk about the event that drew a thousand, a million size across the internet, which is James Cameron's uh, decision to boost the Avatar sequels from three to four. Why? Yes, it was announced at CinemaCon, and 
The first one will be 2018. The second one will be 2020. Third will be 2022. And the fourth will be 2023. And apparently, I mean, I'm... As the young kids say today, I can't even. Why? (laughs) Well, here's the thing. I think James Cameron is something like 61 or 62. So... My math is not great, but I think that'll make him something like 70-something, right? Or almost mm-hmm. 70 by the time he's uh, done with this. Now, the one thing, I, I thought about this, you know, him, you know, brushing up on 70 by the time this is done. And I thought, okay, well, surely that'll mean we won't get any more good movies out of him by that by then. But, <laughs> well, but George Miller who, in my opinion, produced one of the best science fiction movies in recent memory with... Uh, no, Mad- I was so surprised. I was I was expecting not to fully love Mad Max, uh, Fury Road, and mm-hmm. then I saw it and I was like, oh my God, this movie is amazing! Right, so Fury Road was, was directed by George Miller, and I believe he's 71, 71 or 72. Um, so that's amazing just to have that level of inventiveness and fresh perspective, uh, after what has to be a very long and on some levels jaded, you know, career in terms of, you know, where, what vantage point he's looking from. So, I mean, all, all hope isn't lost, but I think the reason why a lot of people are kind of, you know, sighing about this whole avatar thing is one there doesn't seem to be, you know, despite the movie's amazing success, there doesn't seem to be a great demand for sequels. And two, you know, it takes a lot to produce a movie. And I think people are kind of worried or kind of, I mean, when we, when we have favorite directors, we always kind of want them to go in very interesting, new, Mm -hmm. different directions because making a movie. Okay. I'm sorry. Let me just back up. He wants to, he's treating this as a serial or a series. And when you do that in a book form, all you've lost is time. You write the series, your George R.R. Martin or your uh, Harry Potter series or whatever. And all you've lost is time and it's just effort getting the words together and edited and everything. But movies are grand, you know, productions that require, you know, many millions of dollars in resources. And so to kind of take off the table four slots of movies that this incredible director could be directing on various different topics and just just relegate it, you know, just focus his whole world on blue people, on this imaginary world that, yeah. Dancing with Smurfs. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, so... When, when it first came out, were you into Avatar? I mean, are you a, a fan? Um, so I went to see it with a bunch of friends, and I went to see it with, you know, first adopter friends who were pretty much like, oh, my God, he's filmed it in 3D. He's, he's like, it's amazing tech, amazing CGI. Like, look at the details. Look at this stuff. And that's how they viewed it. And I have, well, as you know, um, I have a big fiction writing background. Mm-hmm. And I was there watching this movie and going, this story sucks balls. (laughs) It is white savior, except now instead of minorities, it's blue Smurf things. It's basically dances with wolves with Smurfs or Pocahontas if they were blue. Right. And it's just, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. But, but that being said, 
it felt to me like from a fiction background that he was just going off on the world building without forgetting why we should be interested in the world to begin with. Mm. So it was like, and, and in that sense, I could see why he would want to make four sequels. Cause it's like, you get to build the world and that's so much fun. Like building the story. That, that's the work. That's the work bit. And so, yeah, like I have a theory. And because I agree with you that the story was, well, I don't know if this is what you were saying. It seemed like you were saying the story was somewhat thin. And if that's what you're saying, I agree. Um, I thought this, the story wasn't that rich. It was an amazingly rich world. And so I have a theory. Exactly. Right. So, so I have a theory. I don't think this is about, oh, my God, I'm James Cameron and I have all of these blue people stories to tell and they must be done in this universe. I have a th- he's always at the cutting edge of technology. If you go back to his work with the Terminator two and just other films, he's always been like tech, like, like kind of like an innovator. I have a theory that he's working on something. I'm about to, I'm about to blow your mind. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> tell you this, but I'm about to blow your mind. I have a theory that he is building this world, not so much because he has these stories to tell, but because he's working on making, giving, putting together enough of a rich environment and palette and source material so that we will perhaps be able to experience this for years on end in VR or AR. Now, why do I say that? Uh That's really interesting. So, you know, you know, I'm a tech writer. Right. a technology writer, reporter, and I've been having ongoing discussions with Magic Leap. Have you heard of Magic Leap? No. So Magic Leap is this really mysterious augmented reality company based in Florida. And they have a, I think they have at this point something like, I'm probably getting this wrong, but you know I don't have my notes in front of me on the funding, but definitely somewhere in the range of 500 million plus at this point. And I think they're valued in the billions at this point. And they haven't even released a, a product. They have funding from Google, funding from uh, Legendary Entertainment, and a bunch of other you know big shot people. And I can't reveal my source, but a source has told me that James Cameron is not uninvolved in the development of what Magic Leap is putting together. Which, that doesn't surprise me at all. Like, yeah. That makes so much sense, because even if you think about what James Cameron was doing with the... Um, I forget what it's called, but I think it was called Deep Challenger. He's very interested in exploring different worlds, be they be like the deep trenches of the ocean or with Avatar, that type of world, or even like cutting tech, uh, cutting edge tech stuff. And, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking about George Lucas and how similar the two of them are in that sense as filmmakers, at least in science fiction, because George Lucas obviously created Star Wars and that really rich tapestry of a universe. But when he was helming the prequels, like I think everyone, very few people like the prequels and you should question the judgment of people who do just a little and well i mean it's true yeah but uh no more jar jar please no no more jar jar but you you do have to admit that the prequels the world was still rich right right it's just the story was kind of blah right right 
So, I mean, you know, that's just my theory about these Avatar sequels and why he's focusing on building such a rich world. Uh, You know, again, hugely successful film, but almost no one out there is chomping at the bit like, oh, my God, oh, my God, take me back, take me back. I want to know what else happened to the blue people. I think he wrapped it up in a nice bow. So that's my theory. We will find out. Who knows? Uh, you know, truth be told, I'm going to see the movies anyway. Let, let's just be honest. Well, yeah. you're going to go for the spectacle at the yeah. very least. Yeah. And, and, and I will say also, I hate 3D movies, and that is the best. I'm, that's the only 3D experience I will sign off on as amazing and must-see. And just, it was just... It's- it's because he films it in 3D, and a lot of the, right. the 3D movies we see now are the ones that get upgraded from 2D, and it, that's just never a great experience. Right. So moving on, we also found out that I'm going to say one of my favorite movies of all time, I'm going to top 10. At this point, I watch this movie at least once every year, year and a half, uh, The Mist. Uh, the film based on the Stephen King short story. Uh, oh, God. Yeah, it's coming to Spike TV as a series. And what they're going to do is it's coming in 2017. And it's going to be 10 one-hour episodes. Uh, now, the, the, good, the good news is uh, apparently the same production company behind uh, the film itself will also handle the TV series. So my question to you is, are you, are you worried? Are you, again, it's Spike, by the Um, way. I mean, so that's kind of worrying. They don't have a great track record, you know, in this area. Well, what, part of the reason why the movie is so, and, and the book, part of the reason why it's so like, it sticks with you is the ending, especially in the movie. Oh, love that. That, that ending, like to go on this journey with, all the characters and um not gonna spoil the ending but I when love you that get ending so much my I god know, when you get to that ending you're just you just sit there and you're like no yeah they went there yeah you know um yeah. and I, I especially feel that way about the movie uh about the movie version um but you know how do you keep that tension yeah. with a tv show yeah. like are you gonna have another walking dead type scenario are you gonna like I don't know. Like you constantly, I don't know, with a TV show, you constantly have an episodic arc, but also a season long arc. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, well, how are you going to do it? That's why I felt the movie was such like a perfect, it was a perfect vehicle for it because you have a very clear story of a very, um, of a group of survivors, but at the end of season one of the mist, are you going to have an ending? What's the season finale going to be like? Yeah. I'm thinking, I don't think they can do a Walking Dead thing. Well, I mean, they could. Who, you know, who knows? If I had to guess, well, one, of the, one of the things that was so attractive to me about the film, that remains attractive to me about the film, is that it kind of takes the dynamic of like an Aaron Sorkin, talky, uh, you know, stage play, you know, everyone is super smart and has the perfect thing to say, you know, ad nauseum. They just keep on going and they, they just, they're just... You know, everyone's a brainiac, and and even the dumb people have, like, some really interesting things to say. (laughs) 
but in a horror context. And I don't feel like I've ever seen that. Well, at least not in modern times. I mean, there are some old school films, right. horror films that kind of go there. But in modern horror, I don't feel like I've seen that. And so if they go there, if if they, you know, hire like some amazing, you know, high level writers that can kind of bring that the the same kind of dialogue that was in the in the film and that same kind of interaction i mean it, there are giant spiders and giant you know squid things attacking you and in the supermarket you have like this new york attorney you know i will sue you i will sue you i know what you know i mean i'm just like this is amazing yeah. this is awesome this is exactly what this i feel like this is how real life would go down if this horrific, you know, story, you know, unfolded, you know, in reality. So if they take it, you know, on that, from, from that angle, I think they might have something, but I gotta be honest, I'm not optimistic. It's Spike and I don't know, Spike. I think it could be a good one season show. And this is something we see in like the UK Mm. where they'll do a very short series and it's contained and there's an ending. Mm -hmm. I think that could be something really interesting. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, like, but in America, we do this thing where it's like season one and season one's amazing. Right. Oh, crap. We got to do season two now. And then you're like a sophomore slump. And then by season three, only the diehards are still there. And right. even they're just there because they're masochists and they've watched all of it so far and they're not willing to jump ship. Right. Looking at so, you, daredevil. Looking yeah, at you. Yeah. Um, so but, no, uh, go ahead. But just like real quick, I think it would be really interesting if you did something like the mist with the format of American horror story where each season is a different situation, you know, like a different group of people that you follow living through what's happening. So you could have a small family in a small town dealing with this. You could have government like a parks and recs meets the mist situation where you have a small government like uh, agency and how do they deal with that? Like, okay, so, that would be a really interesting thing. So now, in your I love that idea. So, but in your scenario, has the the vortex or whatever is producing? Because I, I only I'll, okay, I will admit this. I said this was one of my favorite films, but I haven't <laughs> actually haven't finished reading the short story. I, <laughs> I, I read it halfway, and it was there was a lot going on. I think this was actually during Fukushima. Like, I'm not trying to lay uh, this off on Japan, but <laughs> I honestly think this is like something big was happening in my life, and I stopped reading. But if, that happens. Yeah, but if in the TV version, the are you saying like the vortex is still open? Does it keep opening and closing, or are you saying that like some of the creatures just hung around and didn't get killed during the whatever the cleanup? Sorry, spoilers for the mist. Sorry. Um. Well, you know what? I think you could actually play with it because it's a TV, and you know some. I have a bunch of friends who are purists, right? So they're like, oh, they changed it from TV, from the movie, and they changed the movie from the comic or something like that. But it's a new form, so you can have a little more fun with the original source. Mm -hmm. What if you did something like, in the first season, it would be really cool if you had this family, and they don't know anything about what's happening Mm -hmm. with a greater mythos. Season two, you have like the government agency, like I mentioned, and then there are scientists there, and then you actually learn a little bit more about what's happening in the world and it ties into season one and you can have like the audience learning more about the world, but you could make, you can make that shit up. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's detail. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, hopefully they will be that inventive. Cause that's like a really, really good idea. But 
moving hey, on. Hire me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that, I was like, I almost said that at the beginning. Like, you should, maybe you should call Spike with that idea. That's an amazing idea. But it's a, it's a ten episode run, so there's hope there because the fact that they even had the uh, what is it the um, the discipline to just limit it to ten episodes that that kind of I feel like that bodes well. So. Hopefully that'll turn out well. I, I like actually, and this is where I pull out my tiny little soapbox and stand on it. I would really love it if we could do more of UK style yes. series where we just have a nice beginning, middle, end, and not drag out things and like kill them. Well, except I, I agree wholeheartedly, except when it goes the other way and you have something like Sherlock where they're like, hey, here are like two, three episodes and five years later, <laughs> another I actually, one. You know. I, I like that too, though, because then, you know, the actors are free to do other stuff and they're less likely to go like, all you know me for is being Sherlock and now I'm bitter and I can't do anything else. Is that, is that your Cumberbatch? Is that what's no, going on? No. Okay. <laughs> that's, okay. My, that's my bitter British. Thing. Oh, okay. Okay. okay not, so- not saying that Cumberbatch is bitter yet okay so speaking of imitating people that don't look like you who don't look like you mm-hmm. race bending is what we're oh going to talk about God. next anyway. so we we've known for a while that uh hollywood was working on a film or a live action adaptation of the famous japanese manga and anime uh property called ghost in a shell and this week, we finally got our first look at the star, uh, Scarlett Johansson, as the lead character, Major Kusanagi. Major Kusanagi has a different look now. It's Scarlett Johansson. So the film, uh, or the, the still, shows Scarlett looking... I mean, it, it's really... It's a shame because it's a really cool image She's in this like aquamarine blue green setting and she has like this little kind of bomber jacket on and she has like this It just shouldn't be Scarlett Johansson. Right. She has like this black bob hairstyle which now I hadn't I've looked at this photo for at least 2 or 3 days and I it just occurred to me now that this is a very Japanese hairstyle that I'm looking at. Like having uh, lived in Japan. Like I mean she she looks well so, so they, gave, yeah. they gave her Major Kusanagi's haircut, basically. Right. So, so, so let me just lay it out a little bit further, though. So, okay, so that was the first wave. And a lot of people, you know, some people are not kind of uh, bothered by race bending. It, well, we should give some background. Well, do you, do you want to – I'll lay more of the ghost in the shell thing out. But do you want to just give a really short encapsul- encapsulated uh, explanation of what race bending is for anyone who doesn't know what that is? Race bending – is I don't know, God, this is such a it's like when you kind of blur the lines as to what the race is character, it's like kind of gender bending with race and this this really came to a highlight with the the avatar, not James Cameron's am, uh, avatar, but avatar, the last airbender live action movie. Uh, where a lot of the lead characters were changed from at least what in the animated series, in at least from my view, appeared to be Asian characters, 
Uh, Definitely Asian characters. Yeah, and a lot of them were turned into white characters. And this began, and in the, in the world of Avatar The Last Airbender, there are different powers that the characters have. You can be an airbender, a firebender. And so a lot of fans who were upset with this uh, casting choice uh, called it race bending when they cast the, uh, the people. Uh, it's, it's like a riff on whitewashing. Yeah. So moving back into Ghost in the Shell and Scarlett Johansson. So that picture came out and there were some people calling race bending. Some people, you know, maybe who aren't familiar with that kind of, you know, the hubbub that happened a couple a few years back. Um, and then the second wave happened, which is a story that I've seen on a few sites where they claim that there, there's, you know, various sources. There's no one's coming out and giving their name, but sources are claiming a couple of websites out there are claiming that they have a source close to the studio that says that tests were uh, executed with uh. in wherein wherein they attempted to make Scarlett Johansson look Asian. If you're uh, gonna make her look Asian, <laughs> just hire an Asian actress. You, you I know. Make Sorry. her look Asian using CGI. So not you know the the horrendous uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. You know, just using makeup. Or Cloud Atlas. You know, I, wait, what was the one in Cloud Atlas? I, I saw that. I don't remember. Well, well, when they made like Hugo Weaving look Asian, except oh, he, right, you know, right, right, like a lizard. Right. I just thought that was like he was supposed to be an alien or something. I, I didn't really. <laughs> I just, maybe I was just like I don't. Know. Anyway, so, uh, so so the, so now there are sources out there saying that the studio uh, conducted a test trying to make her look Asian using CGI. And the studio has come out saying, no, uh, you know, no such thing happened, but the rumor is out there and it will likely live on just like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio being sexually assaulted by a bear. So <laughs> now, that, so we're there. What, so I feel like this is particularly close to both of us since we lived in Japan and you, I think we both have a lot of respect for, you know, Japanese culture, Japanese anime, manga, and, and you know, this hits doubly home for me because as an Asian woman, mm -hmm. it's just, ugh, ugh, like, or as an Asian American, mm -hmm. especially when you're watching movies, you get so little representation of yourself, mm -hmm. one, and then two, the representations of yourself that you see are so limited to, well, it's limited to geisha or dragon lady. That's what it's limited to. Mm -hmm. And it's even worse for Asian men. So when you see stuff like this, this is an opportunity, not just for like Asian American actors, but even just Asian actors in general, like they could be from the motherland or like the, the, the old country basically mm -hmm. to expand into America or just try something new. And no, you would, it's like studios saying, ha ha, we would rather see a white person pretend to be like you because we can't relate to people who look like you. And well, the I mean, other, the, I mean, the other, if you just want to, let's just say we take them, I'm assuming the logic is that they believe that she is bigger box office than any Asian actress they could find. Now, whether you agree or disagree with that, let's just hypothetically take their side for a second and say, okay, let's say that's what you believe and you intend to move forward with that. 
I'm sorry. I don't believe that Scarlett Johansson is some sort of box office block. I, I mean, yeah, Aven- Avengers aside, uh, I, I don't think she's like some big block box office draw where people, <gasps> Scarlett Johansson's in it? Gotta see it. Done. I, I, well, I you know, is that? She's, she's a lot stronger, I feel, in like movies like her or what's the mm-hmm. other one, Under the Skin. Mm-hmm. Those were like really interesting things. And tiny independent movies, or maybe yeah. not independent, but tiny quirky movies, I'll say. Or even even Lost in Translation, which I absolutely hated, by the Another way. Another quirky um, movie, not not a blockbuster. And a movie related to Japan, so just can't get enough of Japan. Anyway, um, I just don't feel like she, as an as like her persona or what she brings to movies. I just don't feel like it was like, Oh my God, Scarlett Johansson is the absolute best person to play major Kusanagi. Right. And and the other problem is, see, the thing is when you adapt a, a, a popular property, it's one thing if you kind of just take what it's about and put it in a different place and that doesn't change the nature of the story. But in this case, at least in my opinion, I think Japan is integral to Ghost in the Shell. I think it it's, is. you know, it's, it it's absolutely is. And you know what? This reminds me of another uh, failed attempt by the studios to bring Akira, yeah. which, you know, in terms of the cultural pantheon of anime, influential anime and manga, Akira is up there. It's, you know, it's even bigger than Ghost in the Shell. And what they wanted to do with Akira was go like, Ah, let's remove it from Japan and let's put it completely with a cast of white actors. Thankfully, we had Asian American leaders, uh, especially in entertainment, like George Takei going like over our dead body. (laughs) And it got, you know, it got squashed, rightfully so. But in Ghost in the Shell and Akira, Japanese identity is, it's so embedded into the story. And it's, you can enjoy it without having to understand Japanese culture. But once you understand Japanese culture, it just... You understand how integral it is to, to the entire story. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, right. I mean, so do you think... See, I, the whole race-bending controversy, some might argue that it hurt Avatar The Last Airbender. But the film was so, at least... You know, a lot of people agree, myself included, that it was so poorly done that, I, you know, it doesn't seem like protest had anything to do with its failure at the box office. So do you think that, you know, the like outrage over this will impact this or? I think we live in a different world now than when Avatar The Last Airbender was happening because, A, we've had hashtag Oscar so white. <laughs> two years right. in a row and i was gonna get to that well, yeah Go you know like and something that makes me proud is that asian americans are so fucking done mm-hmm. excuse my french yeah. we are so done with being a race i don't really appreciate you stereotyping uh french people as using foul language but okay <laughs> that's okay you can do that race bending right there no just joke Go ahead. no i know but we are just so done with being treated like it's okay because of all the races Mm. and you know, people may disagree with me, Mm. but with of all the races in America, Mm. Asians historically 
have been whitewashed Mm -hmm. the most Mm -hmm. because blackface, if they tried blackface, we would have riots. (laughs) If, if, well, wait, 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 funny. You bring that up. Cause I have another example of this kind of thing that I wanted to mention, which is Nina Simone, uh, or the Zoe Saldana in the new Nina Simone biopic. Now, I did a little digging, and because I was, I was trying to, well, okay, for those who don't know, uh, Nina, Nina Simone was a very famous, popular, I guess, blues singer. I guess she did a little bit of jazz. Yeah. And, you know, she had a very distinctive look. Um, I would call her brown, you know, not light brown, you know, somewhat dark. She's, she's, a, she's a healthy shade of chocolate. Yeah, healthy shade of chocolate. I like that. Healthy shade of chocolate. <laughs> I, I wish I'd come up with that. That's perfect. A healthy shade of chocolate. And they got Zoe Saldana to uh, not only um, wear dark makeup to appear to, to like more to look more like her. When you go to the you go to the IMDb page for this film, uh, dear God, yeah, there's a person listed, a company listed as uh, working on the prosthetics for yeah. her, and so this is drawn uh, now in Main Street. I've put on some Nicole Kidman hours nose prosthetic bullshit. Yeah, so I mean, when, when you have talented, beautiful actresses like Viola Davis, yep, like. What, what, what is, no, no, I, I don't, I don't even. It is just too many. There's too many women available who could have played that. And the thing, once again, Zoe Saldana is not this huge mega box office draw where it's like, huh, we have to use her, you know, otherwise, you know, we've got a failure on our hands. So, um, like the other thing that drives me insane is that. You know who could have done this role and was in a huge blockbuster movie recently? Rinko Kikuchi. She was in Pacific Rim. Oh, you're talking about Ghost in the Shell? Yeah. Oh, she sorry, would have been perfect. Like she that. would have been dead on. Mako oh, my gosh. She would have been perfect. Mako Mori, the look of Mako Mori, you know. She would have been perfect. She's so perfect for it. And I hadn't even thought of her. Just, she would have been perfect. Look, just look at what Mako Mori looks like. Look at what they made up Scarlett Johansson to look like. I'm actually looking at the picture now, and it just, I, 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 I'm burning with... I have not a, seen... What is Mako Mori? I have not, I'm not aware of that film. Uh, no, Mako Mori is the character in Pacific Rim. Oh, okay. Oh, Pacific yeah. Rim. Okay. Like, her, the haircut is exactly the same. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a good casting choice. Um, and, and here's another thing that we don't necessarily know. Uh, I don't know how they've adapted Ghost in the Shell, whether they're living in some bullshit like San Francisco, like they did with Big Hero 6, or they're actually in Japan. If you're actually in Japan, you have someone named Major Kusanagi, and you have Scarlett Johansson do some American-accented Japanese stuff. I'm no, done. no, no, that's not. I'm no, I'm calling it now. There will I'm be done. no fake Asian accent. I'm calling that now. However... You're oh. the you're the you're the master of segues because I was going to bring this up too. So a new TV show along the same lines, not really. This isn't really race bending. I'm going to say this is culture bending on some level. A new TV show based on the film franchise Rush Hour has just come out called Rush Hour, and it stars two mostly unknown actors taking on the roles of uh, Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker. 
and it is Crush Tucker, right? It's been so yeah, long. It's Chris okay, I, I'm not a fan of the film series. I have to be honest. Um, <laughs> so I I tried to watch the pilot. I got 30 minutes in, and I just I'm sorry, I couldn't take any more. Um, but just for the purpose of this podcast, I wanted to just kind of dig into what was going on. So. I noticed that the guy playing Jackie Chan's character, Jackie Chan is Chinese, and I believe in the, um, I don't remember the film narrative, but I know in the TV uh, world of of Rush Hour, it's a cop from Hong Kong. So he's not from mainland China, he's from Hong Kong. And so the, the accent from the actor playing Jackie Chan's role sounded a little weird. So I started digging, and, and he and he didn't. I mean, you know, you, you know, who looks black? Who looks white? Who looks Asian or Chinese? Or you know, we have all these different looks. But I will say that his look kind of it wasn't a face that I was you know used to seeing. You know, when I think of China, but you know that that again, everyone looks different. So I did some digging, and I found out that the actor is John Fu. Mm-hmm. And he's actually a Brit. And he's not just a Brit. He's a half Singaporean Chinese, half Irish Brit. But he's not just a half Singaporean, half Chinese, uh, Irish, half Singaporean Chinese, half Irish Brit. He's a cool Brit. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think we're both kind of, uh, what, what do you call it, Anglophiles? When you a love bit, the UK. So bit, yeah. I think we're both on that on that side of things. And you have different types of British guys. You have the foppish ones. You have the ones who are kind of like rough and rugged. And I think you call them, um, what, what do you call them? The, the guys, uh, chavs. Yeah. The chavs. Exactly. Right. He kind of has like a little chavish edge to him, John Fu. And so, uh, I, I'm trying to find like some interviews of him, like just talking, just like, what does this guy really sound like? Cause you know, does he sound mm-hmm. hardcore British? Does he like, is he actually putting on an accent? And just by pure happenstance, I only looked for just a couple of like maybe a minute. And I, on YouTube, I find a clip of him doing an interview, uh, with an LA uh, newscaster who happens to be Asian as well. Uh, uh, uh actually, the woman is Chinese and she speaks, her name is Sharon Tay, who speaks Cantonese. And she actually asked him about his fake Chinese bad English <laughs> accent. And I was fascinated because you don't really see this. You don't really see someone who is, it, it, would, it would almost be like uh, if you took a Stringer Bell from The Wire Right. And you took Idris Elba, who, who played that role and you put him, you know, you know, you know, on a beautiful studio. Yeah. 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 You you put him on a studio. I'll, I'll agree. He's a beautiful man. Then you put him in a studio for an interview and then someone from the hood or whatever was just like, hey, yo, <laughs> you know, <right>? <laughs> you know who, who are you? You know, trying to act like you're, you know. And so he was actually asked about it. So I'm just curious, like, um, who, who, yeah, I, how I did they come off to you? Um, and it, it's such a complicated politic. Because I and I'm gonna give kind of a roundabout way of, of addressing it. Do you do you know the show? I'm sure you know the show Firefly. I know Firefly, not a fan. All right. So I have no uh, institutional regardless, knowledge. Regardless of that, the the premise of Firefly is that the U.S. and China kind of merge together because of the biggest superpowers, and so now that culture is like the American West and China mixed together, and that's why you have that weird west like frontier west meets asia like 
feel to their universe. Okay, you're losing me, but I'm trying to hang on. Go ahead. And the characters uh, in the show would just, like, throw in random Chinese. Okay. Like, just random Chinese phrases. Okay. All my Chinese friends, as soon as that would come on, they would be like, I can't do this. I cannot do this. (laughs) It sounds so awful to their ear. Uh Or, like, let's take Heroes. The first season of Heroes, where you have the two Japanese characters, um, played by Masioka and... I forgot the other guy, but his character's name was Ando. Mm-hmm. Now, Ando is a Korean-American, and when he speaks Japanese, you can tell he's a Korean-American speaking Japanese, even mm-hmm. though he's fluent. Mm-hmm. And these are things that are lost on a greater audience. Mm-hmm. But to people in the know, it kind of digs under your skin just a little bit. Like, you're telling me you couldn't find someone who could do it? You're telling me that? Okay, so 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 to the rush hour. Exactly. So, are you okay with the rush hour thing with him using um, bad, fake bad English? Not particularly. Okay. If that's not like it's one thing for Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. who English is not his first language, mm-hmm. to sound like that. So okay, so we have Scarlett Johansson, we have Zoe Saldana, we have John Fu, and. I guess next year the Oscars will probably not have Chris Rock. It will probably just move on. But, you know, it's at least people are still paying attention to this. At least it's still coming up. And, you know, on some level, just the fact that it's being openly discussed, hopefully on some level that means some change is occurring. Um, I'm not sure if I'll, I'll part with my money for the, for the uh, Ghost in the Shell film. I, I want to see more of, like, are they trying to pass her off as Japanese who else is involved? Uh, what you know? Can we see some trailers? I just want to say, you know, the fact that this is even being discussed is a good thing. So hopefully, and that we should means appreciate something. that because a couple of years ago, I don't think we would be discussing it. So right, let's get to Ten Cloverfield Lane. Yes, uh, th- there's an interesting backstory to this film because it's directed by someone I've admired for a long time. Uh, that's Dan Trachtenberg. Dan Trachtenberg is one of the three guys who used to do a show called The Totally Rad Show. And The Totally Rad Show was like a video podcast that was on an uh, online network called Revision 3. And they would talk about gaming, movies, TV, all kind of geek stuff. They do a lot of geek stuff. And all three guys lived in L.A. And Trachtenberg happened to be a commercial director in, you know, when he wasn't doing the podcast. And he did a couple of short films. One uh, was uh, More Than You Can Chew, which was a horror film. And the other was um, uh, basically um, a live-action adaptation of the video game Portal. Uh, fast forward, he you know, it wasn't just this easy, but he fast forward, he got a deal um, with Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams' company, mm-hmm. uh, to do this film, 10 Cloverfield Lane. And the film is based on a script uh, called The Cellar which was sold uh, in 2012. And a lot of the, uh, at least from my understanding, I could be wrong on this. I haven't read the seller's script, but from my understanding, the original script, uh, and actually I should just say now, spoilers for 10 Cloverfield Lane. If you haven't seen it, you may want to bow out now. But uh, yeah, in the original script, in, in the seller, my understanding is that it, like there's no, after emerging from the seller story. Whereas in 10 Cloverfield Lane, there's a lot that goes on. 
So actually, why don't you kind of break down just what, what happens in 10 Cloverfield Lane? Well, in 10 Cloverfield Lane, we're following Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And she, you know, from the beginning, you can tell she kind of doesn't have her life together. She leaves her fiancé, which voice cameo by Bradley Cooper. I was surprised to find that out. Uh, and she's driving along, gets into a car accident, wakes up alone in a room, hooked up to an IV. And we meet, uh, I forget his name, but the man played by John Goodman, who, you know, John Goodman's affable. And you think, oh, what's happened here? She freaks out. He's like, no, no, no. Basically, the world's ending because nuclear fallout. We're stuck down here for what, one, two years until everything's okay? And what ensues is her not being able to trust him, trying to figure out whether or not nuclear fallout has actually happened, being stuck in this closed and confined space in a bunker and basically just trying to survive. (laughs) Now, my memory, I, I feel like he said something, John Goodman's character said something about he thinks that there's, you know, it's not safe out there. But did he actually say radioactive fallout? Like, I thought I thought we were unclear. In the film's universe, I thought we were unclear as to what the danger was. He's, he, he says, like, there's, there was an explosion, the radiation. He didn't know where the explosion from, whether it's a foreign government or aliens. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just not safe. And at one point, he takes her up, and he's like, do you see my pigs? The pigs have died from, <laughs> you know, yeah, and then lady, it's not safe out there. And later we see the lady, the yeah. scary lady. That scared the hell out of me. Uh, The lady who's like, oh, so to, I mean, if you've seen the movie at this point, um, the lady comes and she's like, oh my God, let us in, let us in. I want into the bunker. My skin's melting off and I'm crazy. (laughs) Please let me in. Yeah, but there's just enough doubt at that point in the film that you're kind of also wondering, okay, like... You know, I did wonder, I did wonder if John Goodman's character paid her to do that. Yeah. I was kind of like, is this just like a cohort who kind of like made herself look messed up so she could like convince the people who are in there? I mean, it was like, it was very cleverly done. I've heard people liken the suspense aspect of it to uh, Hitchcock and I'm a huge Hitchcock fan. and, And I agree. There was, there was a lot of kind of, uh, like one of my favorite films is rope. Um, and that's another film where we basically, the entire film is basically one set shot. Um, now, that's not the same thing that happens in 10 Cloverfield Lane, but the vast majority of the film is shot in this tiny bunker. And I think it takes a lot of skill to uh, generate suspense in just a room with three people. And all you've got is a script. That's it. You don't have any special effects. You know, there's no prosthetics. No one's turning into a werewolf. You know, oh, you know, it's it's literally just a script. You know, and good acting, and good angles, and lighting, and and that's really most of the film. And from my understanding, again, I haven't read the original script, but um, you know, the original script was far more conventional when the, you know by not having something happen outside the cellar. So when they come out of the cellar. And, you know, it turns out that, well, actually he was crazy, but then there's also something out there. I was just so impressed with that choice. 
And it really like yeah, they owned it. They went there. It was great. What what the thing that you'll always get me that always gets me like warm and fuzzy and just I get warm. It just it just makes me feel great is whenever someone pulls us a, a Twilight Zone on me. You know, they they set up a world. They tell me this is the situation, and I get freaked out by this particular situation. And then at the end, they say, "But no, it's much worse and far more." There are far bigger implications than you could even have guessed. And I, I feel like that's what they did with 10 Cloverfield Lane. They pulled like a, a Twilight Zone. And it was such a satisfying character arc, actually. Yeah. Because she's, she's been scrappy and she's, you know, lost and sacrificed to get to that point. And she's standing in the field. She's free. Yes. You think, you know, the movie could have ended there. And I would have been really happy with the movie in general. Because it up until that point, it felt like I was actually watching a play because a lot of plays are kind of contained one room type things. And then it was like, I got a second movie for the price of one Yes, right after that, like a short film tacked onto that where it was just, holy crap. <laughs> and then once that was done and she was on the road and she's in the car and they're like, warriors, if you have combat experience, go to Houston. And she has a choice of where she's going to go. And she decides to go where they need people with combat. This is a woman who at the beginning of the film had no direction. Her life was in, in shambles to, to have her be like, nah, I've got this. I can help. I can contribute. I kind of have figured out who I am at this point. That was, that was like, moi. that was great. Now clear something up for me. Maybe your geek brain muscles can see what I haven't seen on this. I keep, I feel like I've read a few takes on this film where people are upset that it doesn't necessarily uh, serve as either a sequel or uh, some sort of world uh, building uh, connection to Cloverfield. Nah, and, nah, man. I think this is revolutionary. Well, no. So, 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 but the thing that I don't understand is I keep hearing that take. But And maybe I'm just too forgiving. Maybe I'm just making my imaginative leap. But from my vantage point, I'm thinking, okay, so Cloverfield, there was a monster in Manhattan. That happened. But in the larger universe of Cloverfield, there are actually a number of monsters. And now we're just in this rural area. And 10 Cloverfield Lane is just a couple of the other monsters that we didn't see. And we're going to get more movies where there are other, you know, situations. I mean, is that, did you not get that? Is that not no, what you I, took from That's it? how I interpreted it. I actually interpreted this movie happening at the exact same time as the uh, first Cloverfield movie, just in a different location. Right. And it's like what I said, um, to bring this full circle, it's like what I said with The Mist. Uh, and a TV show, what you could do with just having different stories taking place in the same world. And that's what I think 10 Cloverfield Lane is. Right. So I don't, it's, it's kind of baffling to me that I keep hearing this take of, oh, this isn't, you know, what I wanted. This isn't like a sequel. And it kind of like, it's, eh. it's not a linear sequel. Yeah. Yeah. But this is building out the world. So I, I think people should be happy because this is actually a better, well, not better, a different and in some respects, better uh, piece of the world building. And I only expect it to get better. I mean, I'm sure we're going to get more Cloverfield installments. I'm, I'm sure of it. If we don't, I, I'll, I'd be shocked. I, I, I prefer 10 Cloverfield Lane to the original Cloverfield movie. Mm -hmm. I'm not the biggest found footage fan. 
Yeah, uh, same. But, like, I think it was just some people wanting a sequel, basically. They were expecting another monster basher movie, and what they got was a very quiet drama, and it was something that takes place in the world, but it's not in any way really tied to the characters from the first one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so for me, you know, we saw it the same way. I was satisfied. But the thing that nagged at me, which is kind of where I want to take it now, is just the notion of the bunker itself. Um, I remember, you know, the 80s and, you know, kind of the Cold War and, you know, kind of the threat of nuclear, you know, annihilation and everything. But... I also know that, you know, back in, I guess, with the 50s and uh, to some extent the 60s, there was this whole notion of duck and cover. And there was this whole <laughs> idea of people building bomb shelters in their bar- backyards. In fact, one of the most famous uh, Twilight Zone episodes is about a community, uh, a suburban community having just a great cocktail party and everything's fine. You know, a bunch of couples. And a siren alarm goes off and the radio comes on and they're told, uh, if memory serves, it's something along the lines of, you know, you know, war has broken out, you know, you know, if you have shelter, go to it. And all of the families like, you know, scatter, you know, back to their homes. And one guy in the entire neighborhood had the foresight to build his bomb shelter. And so he takes his wife and his, and his child down to the bomb shelter. And as the, you know, the situation plays out on the radio, slowly the rest of the neighborhood comes to the bomb shelter and they bang on the door and they ask, you know, let us in, let us in. And, you know, and that's kind of where I'm not going to spoil it for you. You, it is your duty to go watch, uh, the twilight zone, uh, and, and find that episode for yourself. But when I watched, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, what really stood out to me was that this this felt like an old notion. Mm-hmm. This felt like something that maybe someone older or whose whose mind was maybe stuck in a previous era. And so I went I went and looked up the writers. I couldn't. I mean, if I looked maybe a little bit harder, I could have found their ages. But two guys, they both look fairly middle aged, maybe older. And I, but I don't, but they don't look that old. They're not like, you know, Harlan Ellison, you know, 70 or something. So I, I, that's the one weak point I found with this. If we're talking about real technology, real technology, culture, real, you know, what's actually happening in our world right now. I don't know that bomb shelters are even realistic at this point. Well, at this point, wouldn't you think about panic rooms? Wouldn't that be kind of. Well, isn't that more so for when someone breaks into your home? as opposed to, like, some sort of war situation? Well, you know, we're not really in a nuclear environment anymore, so you're right in that sense that it feels a little more uh, dated in that sense because Cold War Cold War was all about nukes and mutually assured destruction. And we have North Korea now, but North Korea and Iran, but it's not so much a thing anymore. Well, I, I think the other thing that switched... Uh, over time is particularly with um, the uh, Saddam Hussein situation in the Middle East, I think that the attention turned to chemical warfare. So I think now when you see the movie tropes of, you know, some sort of attack from a foreign, you know, element, 
the idea is more that, oh, we're under chemical attack. But a, a pack room won't help you with a chemical attack either. So Bunker I just, won't help you either. Well, well, no, because the, actually, if you remember, he, yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, he indicated that it was sealed airtight and they had their own, you know, some sort of filtration system or whatever. Who knows if that would really work in real life. But the bottom line is he was indicating that, you know, it was a completely self-contained uh, world or, or room where they'd be that's, safe. That's even the thing about the science of bunkers in general. Like I did some reading on uh, real life bunkers and you can't keep all of the radiation out hmm. even in a bunker. You can just keep a lot of the radiation out and reduce the impact. For And one of the things that really struck me, and I think this was just kind of trying to cover their, their butts in a narrative sense, was the lack of Wi-Fi in, in, this, in, this, in this bunker in the movie. Because Wait, what now? What? They didn't have any Wi-Fi in this bunker. Like, in a modern-day bunker, let's just, let's just say on the premise that nuclear things is... You know, let's just say we have the Cold War now. Right. Nuclear war is an imminent threat. We are building bunkers. Okay. Um, you're telling me that you can't figure out a way to get Wi-Fi on there? So wait, so, but Wi-Fi... This is how we consume data now. This is how we get our information. But yes, we have radios, but I but think you could have a Wi-Fi set up in a bunker. Now, are you talking about Wi-Fi from a hardline connection, or where are you getting this Wi-Fi from? Like, a bunker is just basically a thicker basement. Right. You're telling me he can't figure out a fiber optic situation underground? Right. So that's, okay, so that's what I thought you meant. So I don't know. My assumption is that the whatever lines that exist have been cut. Like, if, if all hell breaks loose, I'm not expecting my internet connection to stay up. I'm just not. Well, you know, we were in Japan when the earthquake hit and mm-hmm. internet we had internet. We didn't have cell lines. Well, yeah, maybe not the best example. Cause I'm, I'm thinking of like, if we're in a cold war situation and bombs drop and it's, let's say it's bombs or monsters or whatever. I'm just assuming all kinds of power lines and data lines are being cut. Um, so I don't know. So I, I mean, for me but to not have it, but to not have it. Yeah, no, I like, mean, to me, that was believable. I, I like that did not, that wasn't a stretch to me. I, I, I feel like I've been in enough disasters at this point <laughs> that, I mean, cause I was, well, I, I was, mean, I've been in a couple of disasters. We yeah, both did yeah, 9-11 so, and 3-11. Right. So, I mean, well, let's wait, let's not gloss over that. Let's just, yeah. so everyone knows we were both in New York for 9-11 and we were both in Japan, Tokyo for 3-11 when Fukushima happened. So we have a little experience in this, but I don't know. I mean, um, I, I mean, I've been through blackouts, I, I, you know, I, to me, it was believable for me, you know, the big issue was who in 2016 is building a bomb shelter. Crazy people. Like, well, I, and I, I guess maybe that's where they. Actually, I actually went online because mm-hmm. I was wondering how much would it cost to build a bunker? Mm-hmm. And there was this website and it's like, here's a cost calculator for how to build a bunker. Like, what size dimensions of a bunker do you want? What kind of radiation protection do you want? And in case you're curious, it's any cheapest size. I think the cheapest estimate I could get was 37000 hmm. And the most expensive from, like, the readily, I didn't really 
go super hard into it, but the most expensive one was around $888,000. So, like, there's crazy people out there. Well, but then you you say that, but then every... Now, this is also... I have no real knowledge of this, but this... I believe this is a thing. I mean, I'm probably going to sound silly right now, but I believe this is a thing. Uh, Whenever you see these, like, presidential plots, you know, oh, the president's in danger, take him down, you know, 30 stories to the bunker. I mean, that's still, I mean, there there still seems to be, like, a bunker mentality with with the U.S. military. The the notion that going underground and sealing yourself in, in a, you know, controlled environment will still save you. So maybe we're just at a point where, you know, as a, as a public, maybe we should be thinking bomb shelters. Maybe we maybe this is not a silly, crazy idea, because if the government's well, still doing it, I mean. Well, the government's still doing it because they have this belief that certain people are too important to die. The logistics of having public bunkers for everyone it's just not going to happen. <laughs> well, no, not public bunkers. I mean, bunker, your own bunker. Right. But uh, capitalism, it's on you to build your own bunker. Right. You're right. Gonna... So, so, I mean, so you feel like at this point, if someone spends the money to build their own bunker, they're just, they're just bad shit. No, no, they're just incredibly prepared, but they should also be prepared for the fact that they may have just spent a bunch of money on something that will never be useful. Well, I mean, it, it, just like, you know, mom tells you to eat your vegetables, you know, the Surgeon General tells you to jog and, and, and work out. Well, like, like just think about the legit. You have to be batshit insane to have a bunker that's ready to be lived in at all times because your food has to be able to... You have to periodically change out your food I'm just, so I'm that just, it's all up to date. You just writing a note here. Sure. I'm, just <laughs> writing a, I'm just writing a note here that you will not be asking to uh, enter my bunker when the apocalypse comes. I can just not worry about you asking for entrance. Good deal. Got one well, person off my list. No, no, no. Continue, please. I'm probably going to do a Mad Max Road Warrior situation if I had my druthers. But, um... Because you have to constantly make sure your water supply is up to date. You have to have filtration systems. You have to have uh, air filtration systems. You have to have entertainment, more than a couple of DVDs, books, all this sort of thing. And this is assuming that you're not going to go cabin crazy and kill yourself while you're in there. Right. I don't know. I mean, I kind of liken it to astronauts, you know, up on the space station. We just had a guy who spent an entire year up there. And he got back and, you know, he, he quit the, the space program, but he looked normal. And I believe he's walking now, you know, because you lose a lot of muscle mass and bone density when you're up there. So, I mean, you know, so, you know, the whole but, idea. Like, the difference with that is that with astronauts, they're such a valuable asset for science that people are constantly monitoring them. They have a constant schedule of something and the connection there's always a connection to someone outside of their circumstance. Yeah, but the, it's, a, bunker, it's a virtual connection. It's a virtual connection. I mean, what the, the point I was getting at is that the idea of a human being able to stay in an isolated uh, space, you know, yes, we know of, you know, the, the cases of someone being put in solitary confinement, driving them crazy. But if you're just trying to survive, 
I don't know. I feel like that the, the space station thing, even with the, you know, the, the, you know, intermittent contact via radio or whatever, you know, I, I, I don't know. I feel like it argues for a bunker not being unrealistic. Um, I started this out thinking that bunkers maybe are just foolish at this point, but I don't know. I hadn't thought about the government thing. If the government is still, you know, on that train, might be time to get a bunker. Nah, I'm not on the bunker train. You just, you just, just, you're just ready to like, just let. I'm, I'm ready to go if it's my time. <laughs> go if it's your time, or become a mutant with one arm and uh, weird boils on your face, like Mad Max Fury Road. You know, I could, I could get it if boils I boils aren't so know, bad. I could do it. I could do it. <laughs> oh. It's just, it's a lot of pre- preparation. You're, if you're having a bunker, you're betting on something going wrong. Mm-hmm. Whereas all that money and all that energy and all that time could be spent living your life. <laughs> well, it's interesting because we just, are you following Fear the Walking Dead? I am actually not following that show because I am not a huge fan of the TV version. Oh, well, well then you won't care about spoilers then. No, I won't. Okay, great. So in Fear the Walking Dead, which is an offshoot of The Walking Dead, uh, spoilers for Fear the Walking Dead, um, one of the characters is this rich real estate guy, and he's been preparing for the apocalypse the entire time. Before anyone knew about zombies or anything, he was preparing for everything. And it is amazing the level of preparation that this guy has in place. He he takes this group of ragtag, this, you know, family members, who he happens to like meet uh, at some detention center and he takes him to his home. This guy has an amazing home, but it's already kitted out for his escape. And his escape is this amazing yacht, like right off the coast of his home. And they get on this yacht. And I mean, this yacht is tricked out with all of like the survival apocalypse stuff. And I gotta be honest, like I remember seeing the original walking dead, you know, the black and white version and, you know, uh, spoilers for uh, The Walking Dead. I'm sorry, Night of the Living Dead. Living Dead, right. Sorry about that. Uh, 1969, I think that came out. I think that's the release date. But it's in black and white. And um, I remember seeing that. And spoilers for Night of the Living Dead. At the end, they kind of, like, the two heroes kind of survive for a while by going down into the basement you know, while the rest of the world was going crazy. And I feel like that was kind of, again, like another uh, kind of ripple or kind of like a side effect of this this whole, you know, nuclear war uh, bunker mentality. So I, I don't know. Like, I'm not, comp- like, the more I think about it, the more I'm thinking, I don't know, may- maybe. You know, that is a common thread in dystopian fantasies. Like, let's think about the Matrix. Humanity lives underground while mm-hmm. the robots take over the, Right. Take over the thing. So I I think there's a good chance that we could evolve into a society of mole people. But <laughs> that's essentially what we would be, right. mole people. Or like even the video games in Fallout. Right. The Fallout video games, which I cannot play because too many roaches. But um or wool. You know, Isn't wool based on an underground community? Do you know that book? No, I don't. I believe Wool by Hugh Howey. I could be wrong, but I, I feel like that's based on a, an, a group of people who have been forced underground. So anyways, all of that to say, I don't know. I started out this conversation thinking that bunkers 
or an old, outdated idea. But it could just be that maybe we've all become a little too comfortable. I think that's definitely possible. Like, in the realm of possibility, I do think that there is a chance that we could all be living underground taking vitamin D supplements. In, in like, like just a personal story, I went to my doctor recently and she's like, oh my God, you pale vampire, you are so vitamin D deficient. You're going to have to take vitamin D shots. And so now I'm just imagining a society where we're all living underground in those blue and yellow fallout uh, jumpsuits getting injected with vitamin D shots because we're not getting any sunlight because everything else is too radioactive. Yeah. But I'm also, you know, I can't say I'm not on the the other side with you as well, where, you know, if all this goes to hell, it might might be better to just go out in that initial wave, you know? That's, that's actually my, my, I used to be a crazy, I used to be one of the crazy apocalypse preparers. Mm. I'm not kidding. I read all these survival situations. I learned how to like start fire with uh, chocolate and a soda can. You can YouTube it. It's kind of cool. Have you heard of preppers? That's the name of them. Yeah, they're they're called preppers. Right. So I had I had a whole notebook, and it was called Victoria's Plan for the Zombocalypse. And (laughs) it was just like how I was going to survive in different situations. And then I was like, you know what? I really want to be prepared, I have to spend so much time of my life to this. I have to go running all the time and I hate exercise. I have to do X, Y, Z. I have to invest my money in this. How, how old were you when, when, when you put this uh, guide together, the Zombocalypse uh, guide? It was my years from 18 to 22. It was four years of my life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that was your genius period and, <laughs> and you've now fallen off and you've become a jaded adult because that 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 is brilliant. That's brilliant. You even had a unique name for it. The the Zombocalypse, yeah. And it was um yeah. but to be to be fair, because I did all my homework and the research, if the Zombocalypse does hit and I don't get killed in the initial wave, maybe I'll survive for three months. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> but like, do you really want to serve like I'm torn on this because do you want to survive in a world where our society has collapsed to the point where we're back to the primitive ages of just scrounging around to survive? I'm sure there's like lessons to be learned and nuggets of wisdom to get from that existence. But part of me is just like, there ain't no Wi-Fi there. Peace out. Like, I don't know. Well, to take it back to uh, Twilight Zone and, and to begin to wrap up, I'm kind of like uh, Burgess Meredith. Um, time alone, time enough at last is the episode. And he goes down into a bank vault. He, he's a, he's a bank worker and he's very, he's a big nebbish. He has these huge Coke bottle glasses and he's always reading. And in the, in the episode, like he's actually, you know, kind of, you know, scolded for like reading too much. And so to get some peace, he goes down into the bank vault to read to get some peace, you know, uninterrupted reading time. And what happens is a nuclear attack happens or some sort of atomic attack happens uh, while he's down in the vault. And he emerges from the vault and everything has been destroyed. Like just he goes, and this is in black and white, but it's incredibly Mm -hmm. well done. He goes up top and it's just for as far as the eye can see, it's just wasteland, just ruins. And 
he's like devastated. He's sad. And he's just wandering around and he doesn't know what to do. He's wandering. He's wandering. And then he stumbles upon the library and in the library, in front of the library are all these books. And then he just starts picking the books up and he's like, time enough at last. He, he gets excited. He's like, this is finally, I have time to, you know, indulge in my favorite pastime. And he, he doesn't even really care about, you know, people or, you know, society or whatever. He just wants to delve into these books. I won't spoil the ending because it is a beautiful twilight zone twist ending. Uh, that's, I think is, it's so good. It's worth you finding the episode, not you, Vic, but anyone listening to this It's worth you finding the episode on your own. But that, I, I, I'll always remember that because I just feel like if yeah. you can find, if, if the apocalypse comes and if you can find your own kind of way to cope, it might not be that bad. True. And I think that's something that introverts, like part of that, that whole thing, that whole twilight scenario that you described. Have you, have you seen it very, by the way? I have not seen it, but that I have thought about that. Like, Oh, I could finally read all the books that I want to read. It'd be awesome. I could do all the things I want to do. I don't have to worry about social obligations. I could just do my thing. And part of me is like super excited for that. But then, you know, how long could that possibly last before we're all human and we crave a social connection? Mm -hmm. Like you would have to turn into something that's slightly not human. Well, that's called evolution. (laughs) Can you evolve if you're the only one of your kind? I think it happens all the time. I, 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 I think that's called evolution, but that's a, that a, granted that would be a dark, <laughs> a dark step in evolution, but you might just have to evolve. You just might have to adapt. And, uh, I, I, I do think I, there are some people who would just like see that and immediately just kill themselves. So it depends on the person. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm not that guy. If, if that happens, I'm not the guy who's offing himself. Uh, I'll be around. I, I, I'm, I'm not roach-like, but I have the same fortitude, and I'm not offing myself. So I'm, I'd figure something I'm, out. I'm with you, except if it's this fallout world and we have giant roaches. That is, no. I oh, can't. if we have, oh, no. See, I, I haven't played Fallout. Yes, I am now uh, excommunicated from the podcast, I know. Um <laughs> I haven't played it, but I'll tell you, if there are giant cockroaches, somehow, I mean, I don't see that happening, but if that, if that somehow happens, yes, offing myself. Yes, then I'm with I you. I am so glad. <laughs> this, is why, this is why we get along. Yeah, I, I'm done. I've, I've done, I, I had my Victoria Zombocalypse plan, and in, in it, it said, note, all moot if giant cockroaches. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, if no. that happens, I mean... Like, there were two plans. If giant cockroaches is my new reality, I have a gun with a single bullet, and I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. Can't do it. So, okay, so to, in, to wrap up, we 10 Cloverfield Lane, uh, great movie. Um, Excellent movie. Great twist. Great um, twist. We want more from the Cloverfield universe. And I want more things like that where we have a world but explore different scenarios within a world. So many stories just to tell from a singular world. And I think that's kind of where we're heading in terms of storytelling. It's great. Worlds within worlds. Well, just like even Rogue One is kind of something like that. Just an offshoot of a greater universe. Stories within a universe. You can't just drop little stuff like that and then, you know. 
I was trying to see, I was trying to segue out, but then you drop like that requires so much explanation, which we will attempt next time on the next Mars time. Magazine podcast. My name's Adario Strange. It's, it's cliffhanger. Stay yes. Tuned. I'm Adario Strange and she is Victoria Vick Song. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk to you next time. Next time.